Okay. On February 4th, 1704, in the town of Deerfield, Massachusetts, a preacher, the name of something Williams, was awoken by the sound of Indian axes hitting his cabin. The town of Deerfield, Massachusetts was under great attack from a French and Indian army. In the attack, Williams lost two children. 38 citizens of the town died and another hundred were taken captive and marched back to Canada. On the way, these Indians and French people made these settlers march at a very cruel pace. And if you couldn't keep up, you were killed. Uh, Mr. Pastor Williams' wife had given birth just a few weeks earlier, and so she was in no strength condition to keep up with this winter trek north, and so they killed her. Uh, Pastor Williams recalled that he, at the end of each night, would have to wring the blood out of his socks because of the harsh conditions and the cold. He would preach to his congregation when he could out of lamentations. It seemed like God had abandoned them. When they got to Quebec, the Jesuits, who have we've seen have produced some heroes, started torturing the congregation, trying to force them to convert to Catholicism. But Timothy, I don't know if his name was Timothy, Pastor Williams, he, he maintained it was John Williams, thank you. He maintained his faith, but his daughter, Eunice, converted to Catholicism and married into one of the Indian tribes. His daughter was Eunice, and that was Jonathan Edwards' first cousin. The woman who died was Esther Williams. That was Jonathan Edwards' mother's sister. Jonathan Edwards was just one year old at the time, and he grew up praying for cousin Eunice that she would come back to the faith. Jonathan Edwards' uncle, John Stoddard, was also there, and he will play a pivotal role later in the story. Jonathan Edwards was the son of Timothy Edwards, who was a pastor who had 11 children and only one boy. So Ed, Jonathan Edwards had 10 sisters, and in smack dab in, of these 10 sisters was Jonathan Edwards. These girls were all tall. Timothy Edwards joked that he had 60 feet of daughters. <laughs> whether that are true, was true or not, but that would have been exceptionally tall, especially in colonial times where the average height was quite a bit shorter. Jonathan Edwards himself grew into a very tall, skinny, frail-looking man. Jonathan Edwards, as a young boy, about the age of nine, built a fort in the woods, and he would have prayer meetings with other kids. But all growing up through his formative years, he worried about his salvation, whether he was saved. His father, Timothy Edwards, advocated, you must have proof of your conversion before you could partake of communion, before you could have church membership. So they had studied it and they said, these are the signs, these are the stages that someone will go through when he becomes saved. And Jonathan Edwards worried that he had not followed these particular progressions of salvation. When he was about 16, he had some kind of disorder of the chest where his life was in danger, and he felt like he was being held over the pit of hell, he said. He was so terrified and shaken. But something happened to him spiritually in this ordeal, and when he was 17, he said God opened his eyes in a whole new way to the beauty of creation. He saw the world completely different. He was an exceptionally bright person. At 13, he started going to college and then went on to Yale. And he had really struggled with the so doctrine of predestination, with the sovereignty of God. All he could see was that this seemed so harsh that God was creating some people and not choosing them out for salvation and letting them go to hell and he shook his fist at God. 
But something happened when he was 17 where his eyes were opened in a whole new way and he realized that he had underestimated God's sovereignty. And he said, what if God was completely sovereign over every detail of life and that everything was motivated by pure goodness and justice and beauty and love? He was so overwhelmed reading that verse in 1 Timothy that says, to God who alone is wise, omnipotent, invisible, powerful. And these words were just like a ray of light. He started seeing all of creation as a personal communication from a loving God. Everything he saw was a love letter from God and he marveled at every detail. He loved taking walks in nature. He spent, I don't know, weeks or months writing a thesis studying the flying spider, marveling at every little ability, how he could spin a, a sob substance that would turn into something almost as, as strong as steel. But he noticed how these spiders almost seemed to take a delight in flying. And he thought, that's amazing that God is even giving his goodness to animals where they enjoy the life that he has created for them. So he was a substitute pastor in New York at the age of 19. He became very good friends with a, a widow and her son named John. He was only there for a few months, but he loved his time there. He came back home and it, he went through this restless period. He wanted so much to go back to this New York congregation. He went and substituted at another small church, but it wasn't the same. So an opportunity to tutor at Yale opened up. Yale had just been through a difficult time. Timothy Cutler had just reverted to Anglicanism, and so he had to be dismissed. Jonathan Edwards was only 19 or 20, and he did not relate well to young men because he had a mind that was obsessed with God and completely resolved to live in a way that glorified God. In his late teens, he wrote a series of resolutions that are incredibly high-reaching. They said things like, to never live a single moment as if I belong to anybody but God, and to give every amount of my energy to the glory of God and the advancement of religion or the relationships with people. But he was resolved to study. He was resolved to not let anxiety get the better of him. He was resolved to be patient. He was just a man obsessed. Jonathan Edwards had an incredible amount of drive. As a pastor later on, he would spend sometimes up to 13 hours studying or praying or reading new works. He was a voracious reader. There was new enlightenment philosophies coming out and he was reading them, digesting them, wanting to respond to them. So he understandably had trouble relating to young men. When he was a peer and they were partying, he was more likely to report them to, than to enter a party with them. And so he was not popular. Something happened when Jonathan Edwards was 20 during the commencement season that put him into a three-year depression. And he stopped journaling. We don't know what caused it. Those three years of his life are missing. But somehow, at the end of those three years, he was invited to become the associate pastor at his grandfather's church, Solomon Stoddard, who was one of the most recognizable names in colonial New England. His dad, Timothy Edwards, and his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, disagreed on this issue of communion. Timothy Edwards said you must have a profession of faith in order to partake in communion. Solomon Stardard said, there's no way we can really tell from the outside if someone is saved, so let's make it an open communion, and let's hope that maybe in the very act of partaking in communion, these people will receive grace which will draw them to God. We don't know which view Jonathan Edwards held, but when he took the pastorate, he supported his, his grandfather Solomon Stoddard's position for many years, and when he changed it, it led to a problem, which we'll get to later. Around the time that Jonathan Edwards came out of his depression was around the time he got married. So maybe this depression had something to do with it. When he was 19, Jonathan Edwards 
had written this poem about a young girl named Sarah Pierpont, about how the Almighty had created this girl who was obsessed with God, who took great delight and had no other desire but then to be completely ravished by God and to enjoy it, and how everybody who knew her noticed this sweet, loving spirit. If I use the word sweet a lot, it's because Jonathan Edwards used the word sweet a lot when he was writing and describing things. He wrote this poem when he was 19 and he gave it to Sarah Pierpont. And four years later, he ended up marrying her. He ended up with a tremendous amount of respect for Sarah. And as we'll see later, she was very much worthy of that respect. Solomon Stoddard died two years later after Jonathan Edwards took the position. And Jonathan Edwards was a faithful pastor for many years. Uh, this was in Northampton, Massachusetts, where he was the pastor. Land was very scarce, which was pushing the age of marriage back. Men, the average age for men getting married was 29. The average age for women getting married in this community was 25. This left a lot of restless young people who felt kind of aimless. And what they liked to do was frolic. Sunday evening was often the time when they did most of their frolicking. And in 1727, there was an earthquake that happened on a Sunday evening. Jonathan Edwards, who saw anything that happened in nature or events as a message from God, and he said, this is God warning this community. You need to stop your frolicking. You need to start focusing on spiritual things. But the message largely fell on deaf ears. Then in June 1935, one of the ringleaders, one of the most popular young men in the circle, contracted a sickness and he died just a few days later. And the community of young people was devastated. Jonathan Edwards, at his funeral, he preached on that verse from Psalms that talk about how we are just like grass and in our we achieved some glory and then we're just mowed down. And he said how sad that a, a young man in his glory was just completely cut down and what a waste it is to spend your life pursuing earthly pleasures when the greatest pleasure, the greatest fulfillment is found in a relationship with God. And he urged them to pursue the pleasure of Christ which would continue on into eternity in contrast with the temporal pleasures. God's spirit started to move and within a few months, the town of Northampton was completely transformed. This young woman who was one of the most immoral women in, young ladies in the community, she came and repented in tears and people were shocked. Of a town of about 1,000, 300 people, which was already mostly Christian, 300 people claimed to have a conversion experience. Young people were no longer frolicking on Sunday evenings, but after the typical five hours of church that they would have. They were having Bible studies and prayer meetings and singing songs. And it was just this amazing revival. Jonathan Edwards, who loved to analyze things, started recording exactly what was happening, hoping to study this with his scientific mind, seeing what kind of work of God is happening. And he wrote this called The Faithful Narrative of a Surprising Work of God's Spirit, or something to that effect. He published it. And it was sent to England, where people like Isaac Watts and Wesley read it and just devoured it, and it became a bestseller over there. But right as Jonathan Edwards finishing this and was exalting about how this awakening was transforming his city, his uncle, Joseph Hawley, slit his throat exactly one year in June 36 after. This resulted in a demonic attack on the town where there, became, there was a suicide craze. Suddenly people were completely tempted to cut their throat, like they had this voice urging them, now's the time to get out of this. Joseph Hawley apparently had, was feeling so guilty that he wasn't experiencing this work of the Spirit. And Jonathan Edwards had encouraged, had, their method was not to just soothe the conscience and say, you'll be okay. It was to increase the conviction. It was to increase the pressure. And Jonathan Edwards wondered if that had 
contributed to this suicide. But the awakening, the revival, was over. And quickly, people returned back to their petty state. Jonathan Edwards, meanwhile, was gaining a lot of recognition for what he had written. And when George Whitfield came a few later, a few years later, when Whitfield came, we looked at him at the last session yesterday, he became the first colonial superstar, celebrity, attracting crowds of over 20,000 sometimes. People would trample each other to get to the front to be able to hear George Whitfield. And Jonathan Edwards invited Whitfield to his church, but he said, please don't expect the same results you're getting everywhere. I'm afraid our congregation has been kind of saturated with the gospel and their heart and basically warning them, don't expect the congregation that I wrote about in my book to be the one that you see here. But Whitfield came and he preached and both Jonathan and Sarah Edwards were so impressed with George Whitfield. Sarah was amazed at how he could speak so earnestly just the simple truths of the gospel and how people were impacted. Jonathan Edwards was seen weeping during these sermons. He had Whitfield speak to each of his older children. By the way, Whit Edwards himself had, it was a little confusing, 10 or 11 children. And the first four children were born on Sunday, which led to a lot of teasing from his congregation because there was a wives' tale that children were born on the same day they were conceived. So, <laughs> he got over it. <laughs> but, again, another revival started. And Edwards was afraid that this time they would just fall away again. So he started preaching this sermon on the sower and how there was true and false conversions and just urging them to not just get caught up in the moment but to take this seriously but this time this was part of the greater revival the great awakening that was taking place all over the colonies and again it was just a fire was catching people were falling in love with God they were abandoning their ways they were transformed, everybody, all that you would hear was people talking about God and just how hungry they were f for him. At first, a lot of people were embracing this, but there were some critics that were cautious about this awakening because it was accompanied by so much emotional fervor, people wailing and screams and physical manifestations. But they were wanting to be very careful not to speak out against what may be a work of God. George Whitfield wrote a journal for two years and had it published. But when it was published, as a brash young man, he was only 25, he had recorded in his journals which ministers he thought were converted and which ones were spiritually dead, which gave the enemies of the revival a lot of ammo. He had also lumped Yale and Harvard together as places that used to be colleges of light and were now colleges of darkness. Yale took exception to this because they did not feel like they were as liberal as Harvard. There was also a young man by the name of James Davenport who took this ministry of letting people know that their pastors were unconverted very seriously and was going around stirring up discord. And he was stirring up the Yale students, saying, you know, the, this pastor that you're supposed to listen to every Sunday, he's a wolf in sheep's clothing. And his sermons are your, to, to your soul what rat's bait is to your body. Strong words. There was also a young man by the name of David Brainerd at Yale, who was expelled from college for saying that one of their tutors had no more grace than a piece of furniture. They invited Jonathan Edwards to give a commencement speech and the leaders of Yale hoped that he would rebuke the students. But what Edwards ended up doing was giving a defense of these revivals, saying, some of you are saying that this emotion is proof that it's not a genuine work of God. Some people were calling it just a distemper that they were catching from Whitfield. But he said, if you think about it, we're dealing with issues of extreme joy 
and fear and sorrow and guilt. Emotions are going to play a strong role in any genuine conversion. So for granted, emotions can also be stirred up by false teachers. So emotions shouldn't be held up as an evidence of the Spirit's work or an argument against the Spirit's work. He said what we need to look for is lasting change, and he believed that he was seeing lasting change. But then he ended with two cautions. First of all, he addressed the student saying, it's very dangerous business to start trying to decide who's saved and who's not. He also warned the other side, though, if you're fighting against this and it is a work of God's Spirit, then you're fighting against the Holy Spirit. But as this revival grew, the experiences became more outlandish. Some people would enter a trance for 24 hours, motionless. Some people were have, being transported, having visions of heaven. Some people were having like almost heart attacks, just being gripped with such intense pain. And of course, the wailing witnesses, when they hear a service, it sounded like a bunch of women were in labor. It was just that kind of intensity. And so the staid older generation, a lot of them were mature Christians, started writing attacks on the revival, show, pointing to some of what they said the negative effects, that lay people were just voluntarily preaching, showing how people were holding up their spiritual experiences as proof that they were more spiritual than someone else and how it was becoming divisive and people were leaving their churches and they were accusing their pastors of being unconverted. It split into what was called old lights and new lights. Old lights were the people against the revival and the new lights were people who were in favor of this. Something else that ministers were finding was that when you traveled, sometimes this the new congregation you would go to was much more receptive to your work than the congregation you were spending your life in. So lots of churches were inviting itinerant ministers in, and some were starting to travel, including Jonathan Edwards. Uh, let me quickly mention that James Davenport, <laughs> who was at once supported by the New Lights, became more crazy. And once in London, not the London that was somewhere in North America. He had a big burn fire burning Protestant books. He's saying, we're falling into the same tradition that the first Reformation was railing against. And the next day, he had another bonfire against worldliness, where he was going to throw wigs and jewelry and fancy clothes, and he even offered to throw the very pants he was wearing into the fire. <laughs> At this point, his supporters stepped in and silenced him thinking that maybe he was possessed. And he admitted with counseling that he, he had been listening to a false spirit and he was going too far. But he confessed of that and went on to have a very successful ministry. But Jonathan Edwards traveled and he went to Suffield where he had us preach the sermon and 97 people were added, just moved. The next day they had a, a revival meeting in a house and again, just the spirit was moving so strongly that people were wailing and just this so loud, either the sounds of people in ecstasy because the burden had been lifted or people being just crushed under the weight of their sin and fear of God. And on Wednesday, he traveled to the town of Enfield where he got up before the congregation and Edward's style was not like Whitfield. Whitfield was a master of body language and he, would, he was like a... a an actor on the stage, just using all sorts of emotion. Jonathan Edwards would just either look at his notes or later when he memorizes, look at the back of the room and recite in a monotone his message. Edwards' strength was in the force of his argument, not the force of his emotion. But he preached a sermon that you maybe have heard of, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, where he used very poetic images. Apparently, the type of sermon that he preached was the sermon that was a, was a type of sermon that was preached to convicted murderers just before they died, begging them to convert before they faced hell. 
So the congregation would have realized Edwards is speaking to us as condemned murderers. And the imagery there is not for the faint of heart. He talked about how the wrath of God's water was rising and that God had bent back his bow of his wrath and his justice was aiming the arrow at his heart. How men were walking over a rotten covering over sin and their sins were turning him into lead and it could fall through this rotten covering at any moment. That God was holding him over the fires of hell like one would hold a loathsome spider and at any second God could let go and you'd fall into hell. That you were being held over hell by a single thread and the fires of hell were singeing this thread and there was nothing you could do to reach out to save yourself. The sermon ended with the good news of the gospel, but Edwards never got to that point because the congregation was so filled with weeping and moaning and begging, what must I do to be saved? Stop, help us, we need help. And so he stopped and started telling these people. And he said, though, the looks of ecstasy and joy on their faces when they encountered salvation, when they knew that they were being saved. This revival continued and Jonathan Edwards started taking steps. He said, this Northampton was known for having revivals. Solomon Stoddard had led several in his life. And this time he wanted to hold the congregation accountable. So the town, he started signing a covenant where he would hold them accountable, where they would use all of their will to maintain this love and faithfulness and purity. And they all signed this covenant. But, again, as Edwards had seen so many times, his congregation started falling into pettiness again. He was especially grieved when they built a new church because in the colonial period, your seating in the pew, you would have an assigned pew, and you could basically see the social status of the town by how close you sat to the front. Now, in a lot of people's minds, the social status had changed since the last church was built. So it wasn't as easy as just saying, well, this was where my pew was before. They thought their pew, they needed the pew that was two pews up. And he was so discouraged by this, especially since in the old church, maybe even while the church was being built and they were squabbling, the whole back, there was a, a back balcony that had crashed full of men onto the people below. And they thought for sure there would be a bunch of people crushed to death. But miraculously, not a single bone was broken. But Edwards again pointed to this saying, this is a warning sign. Around this time, to use one of my favorite phrases from yesterday, there were some young men and by young men, I mean in their 20s, <laughs> with great maturity, were passing around midwives' manuals and a British science book, which was their form of pornography. And they were using the information to taunt teenage girls about their monthly cycles and their body parts. And Jonathan Edwards, who had teenage daughters at the time, was understandably disgusted by this. And he also had remembered this covenant that the town had signed just a few years earlier. So he preached this sermon rebuking the church. And then afterwards, he called a bunch of people to a meeting to discuss this problem. But he pub the mistake he made was that he publicly named names. And he didn't make a distinction between who were mere witnesses and who was guilty for spreading this around. So the congregation went home in an uproar, and they were quite upset with him for what he was doing. One of the young leaders, his name was, I think it was Timothy Root, I'm not sure on the first name. At one of these meetings, he was waiting for one of the elders to come, and he said, can I leave? And they said, no. So he threw a fit, and he said, I will not worship a wig and stormed out of it. And later he was heard to saying, these, these elders are nothing but molded dirt and, I quote, I don't give a fart for them. 
just very mature young men. But this was, <laughs> this was stirring up the town against him. Is there a cinnamon of around this time? Anyway, at this time, uh, the French-Indian War started, where squabbles between Britain and France broke out in Europe and continued into squabbles in North America. And Massachusetts is very far north. It was close to the Canadian border. So war was started. Uh, John Stoddard, who was Edward's uncle, became one of the top generals in the area. A bunch of people from Jonathan Edwards' church were recruited to try to take the fortress at Lewisburg, which was part of the shipping route, and if the hostile French and Catholics who owned the area, they were getting away in British shipping. So a bunch of people from Jonathan Edwards' congregation, 50 from the community, joined this military expedition to take this fortress. Benjamin Franklin satirized, he said, well, this should be an easy battle. We have thousands of people praying to God, and the Catholics have about 44 people praying to Mary. I think we'll, I think we'll take this. They did take the fortress, and it was a huge victory for the British. But in the process, John Stoddard had a stroke, and he passed away which turns out to be terrible timing for Jonathan Edwards. Because right around then, he had been planning a reform to church policy. He had been quite concerned about false conversions after having seen a cycle of them, that he wanted to clamp down on who was partaking of communion. And he wasn't going to go as radical as his own father. He just said, I want people to have a credible profession of faith before they can partake of communion. But the city was up in arms about this, and they thought, oh man, this, how, this Jonathan has been lying to us all this time. He was just waiting for John Stoddard, who was a, a main leader in the community, <coughs> waiting till he was out of the way, and now he's turned code, he's revealing his true colors, and he's going to be oppressive. And after 21 years of faithful ministry, they dismissed him. They just... They dumped him, even though he had so faithfully served the community. Some Sundays, it was an awkward position because Edwards lived in the community for a year. Some Sundays, when they couldn't find a replacement, they would ask if he could fill the pulpit, saying, but making sure they knew they couldn't find anybody else. But then to throw salt in the wounds, the congregation voted that he wouldn't be allowed to do pulpit fill. And they also voted that he couldn't use the pasture. So Jonathan Edwards here had 10 kids and was struggling financially. My apologies, I need to back up a year before this because of a rather significant event. Uh, this happened during the French-Indian Wars. David Brainerd, that young man who had said that his tutor didn't have a, any more grace and shares, became tempered and was a missionary to the Indians. And he wrote a journal of his the difficulties he encountered and his heart for God. But when he was 29, David Brainerd contracted tuberculosis. And he came to the Edwards house to convalesce there. And Jonathan Edwards put his daughter, Jerusha, who was 17 at the time, in charge of taking care of David Brainerd. And Jerusha and David Brainerd fell in love during David Brainerd's last few months on earth. And David Brainerd, just before he died, he said, if I didn't know that we would be reconciled again, I said, there's no way I could bear parting from you. And they were reconciled just a few months later. Jerusha also died. And Jerusha was the absolute apple of her father's eye. She always had such a, a sweet spiritual presence to her. And the Edwards family had been very spared from death. And then Jerusha passed away. And it obviously devastated him. Edwards was always in the midst of these monumental projects. He set them all aside so that he could publish David Brainerd's his journals along with a brief biography. And that actually is the book that Jonathan Edwards is most famous for. It was the book that 
people like William Carey took with them and read for support, for encouragement and inspiration. At Jerusha's funeral, Jonathan Edwards contrasted Jerusha's purity with some of the moral laxity. The Northampton parents were actually allowing their teenage children to bundle, which meant they were allowed to sleep in the same room as long as they were clothed. But it wasn't actually working because unwed pregnancies were on the rise and it was quite common for babies to be born seven months after the wedding. And so he was holding up his own daughter's purity as an example of the life God wanted young people to live. But this was during the time when the congregation was not real receptive to him. So they voted him out and Jonathan Edwards didn't know what to do. Some congregations from Scotland invited him to preach over there. But at this point Edwards was feeling very unsure about his administrative abilities. He was never good at small talk. He had trouble making the pastoral visits. People who lived with him, they said when he warms up, he's a very animated conversationalist, but he was just so deep that he couldn't do this, this shallow talk. But he chose to move to Stockbridge, Massachusetts, which was a small town. If you see, I don't have the map of Massachusetts up here, but it was just on the western southern corner of the province and it was a mission outpost for the Mohican Indians. He said I will go there to be a missionary to the Mohicans. Right now this is about 1750 when Jonathan Edwards went in his, his late 40s. Sarah Edwards had just given birth and this is why it was confusing because they said it was their 11th child, the 10th child, so I don't know which it was. But anyway, she had just given birth to a child and he moved, he went to head to Stockbridge where there was some relatives of the Stoddard clan. One of the young women there had married into the Stoddard family and her name was Abigail. And from what I gather, the best way to picture her is to think of Harriet Olson. <laughs> because she was a very refined woman but a very controlling woman. And she wanted all the amenities of, of civilization in this pioneer post. The Indians loved Jonathan Edwards. They are, his, boy, his son was six or seven at the time, and he got along with the Indians so well. Jonathan Jr. picked up the language very quickly. They were, of course, very impressed with Sarah. Abigail, though, was an absolute thorn in the flesh to Jonathan Edwards, so he invited a friend for moral support. I don't remember his name, but anyway, he fell in love with Abigail <laughs> and ended up marrying her, much to Jonathan's chagrin. <laughs> While he was here, Edward's paper was very scarce for Edwards, so he would write on whatever scraps of paper. So some of the greatest theological works in American history, we have scraps of them written just on little <laughs> pieces of paper that are stitched together with him trying to make the most of every square inch of paper. Some of the projects he was working on was writing against the Enlightenment, which was starting to see the world as just a giant watch, just a cold machine. And he was saying, no, this is created by God. It's this personal communication. Everything in earth is alive with the love of God. It's, you can't see it as just a cold machine. Another thing he was working on was going to be the complete harmony of the Old and New Testament. Jonathan Edwards loved the idea of types, how just as the Old Testament revealed types of God, God put types of himself into nature, like for example the silkworm, how when it dies it gives up its clothes, it's used for clothing, and so we say that's a type of Jesus, how when he died he became our clothing of righteousness. He also saw some negative types, like in the way a cat plays with a mouse, tormenting it, let the mouse think it has, thinks it has freedom, and then pounces on it. He said, that's just like how Satan deals with us. He torments us, lets us think we have freedom, and then pounces on us again. Just an example of how Edward's mind was working. Another thing that Edwards was working on was the grand history of redemption from the beginning, where not just the redemption in the Old Testament, but also the history of revivals, and he was writing at how God was going to continually advance his kingdom until about the year 2000 when God was going to set up the millennial kingdom. Jonathan Edwards was what we would refer to today, today as a post mill and he thought that the 
millennial time, there would be more, so many people born and so many people converted when the earth is covered with the knowledge of God that in the grand scheme of history, he thought that more people would be in heaven than in hell because of how the millennium would positively skew the numbers. There was the French-Indian Wars were creating a lot of problems. The Mohicans left the, left the church, left the mission, leaving not very many of them there, but Edwards continued to serve the people who were there. What amazes me is uh, a friend of Edwards felt called to be a missionary to the Mohicans, and Jonathan Edwards sent his 10-year-old son with the missionary into the native wild so that his son could help with the mission work and translation. That's incredible amount of faith, sending your 10-year-old son in to live among savages. They were, of course, Puritans were very careful not to make idols of their kids, to not smother them. They realized that they belonged to God and his purposes, and that they were just protectors of them, which meant sometimes giving an open hand. One of Jonathan Edwards' daughters, Esther, fell in love with a much older man named Aaron Burr Sr., who was the president of New Jersey College, which later moved to Princeton. They had a son named Aaron Burr Jr., who became the second vice president of America and is also the one who shot Alexander Hamilton in a duel. So that was Jonathan Edwards' grandson. But during this time, Esther, she had two children. Aaron Burr Jr. was only six months, and she came and visited her father in Suffield. And she said, she wrote her friend what a terrifying time it was when they were constantly under threat with the natives. And she said, I know we're supposed to surrender to God's will, but I just cannot bring, I can just not bring myself to surrender to the idea of being murdered in my bed by savages. But she said she had a great talk with her father who calmed his fears. And she said, I'm so grateful to have such a great father who helped me, helps me see things. But she also got out of there as fast as she could. Went back to Princeton. Jonathan Edwards stayed there, even though he had a young family. But Aaron Burr Sr. died, and Princeton was looking for a replacement president. So Aaron Burr's father-in-law came to mind, Jonathan Edwards, and they invited him to come be the president there. He didn't want to leave, but he sought the Council of Friends, and with great tears, he left his family. He left his family in Suffield and came to Princeton. He was only there for a month when the smallpox was going. There was a threat of smallpox, so he encouraged, being the man of science, he was inoculation which they would scrape the pores of smallpox victims and blow it into the person's nostrils. They found out later that cowpox was less dangerous and more effective. But Jonathan Edwards died of smallpox. And just a life cut short. He was in the middle of such great projects. People often wonder what kind of impact he would have had had he been alive through the revolution. Because this is 1757 at this time. On his deathbed, he wrote a moving letter to Sarah because Sarah had been, he said, we've had an uncommon union and it's of a spiritual sort, so I know that it will continue. Uh, I just need to talk about Sarah. Jonathan Edwards was a man with his head in the clouds, in a good way, which left her with the management of the resources, of the homeschooling, of the, with the 10 children, of, the economic details that the family had to go for, and she was so defensive of her husband. When um, uh, itinerant pastor would come speak in the congregation, and people were praised how he was so great, she would get very defensive of Jonathan. But she said she had this one experience where God completely changed her heart, where God just became so incredibly beautiful to her. She went into just ecstasy and trance. She felt like she was just swimming in God's love. And she noticed her heart was completely changed. She no longer was jealous or defensive. She just was completely transformed. Jonathan Edwards used Sarah Edwards' account as, as proof that it was mature, godly Christians who were having these experiences. It wasn't just immature Christians. But Jonathan Edwards was... He died and 
Just a few months later, his daughter Esther died. Sarah Edwards was sick in bed when she heard the news that her husband had died and her daughter. She traveled to Princeton to gather the orphans and she died a few months later. The Edwards family, which was, had been so protected from death, Jerusha's was the only death, all of their kids, sounds like she didn't miscarry, all of their kids made it out of infancy in an age where half the kids of a family didn't make it to adulthood because of sickness and disease. Jonathan Edwards, as he was dying there, they thought he had already died, but he was still listening. But he revived enough just to say, to preach his last sermon, to trust in God and you have nothing to fear. And then he died. I wanted to end this Sunday on Edwards. For one, he's a, a huge hero of mine, like I mentioned yesterday. I want to give our next son, Edwards, as the middle name. But Edwards had such a vision of God that I guess is incomparable to almost anything that I've, I've read from other writers. He preached to his congregation a, a divine and supernatural light. And to Jonathan Edwards, we have our five senses, but we must receive a spiritual sense if we are to understand the beauty of God. We can say we love God, we can sing the Christian hymns, but we can be completely blind to the beauty and goodness of God. He said, you can say honey is sweet all you want, but until you've actually tasted honey, you have no idea what that means. And he urged the congregation, cry out to God to have your eyes opened so that you can see the goodness of God. And he faithfully proclaimed this message, urging people to look to God, to cry out to him, to have their eyes opened so that they could encounter the God that he did. Something else that he was so serious about was constantly telling people to be aware of their own mortality, how quickly death was going to take them and they didn't know, and to make sure that they spent this life looking for God, asking him to open their eyes. And that's how I want to end this weekend, is just urging you young people, almost everybody here probably, for the most part anyway, has grown up in a Christian home, and you know all the phrases. You all know how to talk Christian. But an illustration came to me where if you traveled to a new place, that, a beautiful nature place, we were actually at Writing on Stone, and I was amazed with how beautiful it is. And if you were a blind person, and you went to another country where it was beautiful, and you heard these people describing this in German. You didn't know German, you didn't know the meaning of the words, but you started being able to repeat all the German phrases. And so you could go to another German and describe this beautiful place because you'd heard all the words before. All the while, you have never seen what you are describing. I thought that's, a, I think, an analogy of what happens to Christians who have grown into a Christian home. You can sound all the syllables out. You can say you know God, say that you love God. You can read the Bible from beginning to end. But apart from that spiritual light, apart from receiving that spiritual sixth sense of having your eyes open, you know nothing about the beauty and grandeur of God. Edwards would have experiences of God that just would keep him weeping for an hour. And this, this isn't with music or any other emotional aids, just being out in the field meditating on the beauty of the Trinity or the beauty of the sacrifice of Christ. He'd say, he said sometimes when he was read the Bible, he would marvel. He felt like each new sentence was just shining forth radiant light and he would just marvel at a single sentence, wondering what new treasures of God were being revealed. And so I just urge each of you young people, cry out to God until he opens your eyes. He is so willing to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. But if God is not beautiful to you, if you don't understand the beauty of holiness, if you think that Christian service is a drag, that it's a bunch of do's and don'ts and rules, you are in a very dangerous position. You very likely just have a temporary faith. 
just an acquired front. If you do not know the beauty of God, fear for your soul. Because you are in a very dangerous position and Satan is going to be so quickly wanting to snatch you from God's hands. So cry out to God with all that you have that he would open your eyes. Father in heaven, you are so good to us and you have beauty and majesty that is completely indescribable. And no matter what words we preach, it's nothing, Lord, without your spiritual, without your Holy Spirit opening our eyes. And I just cry out to you as you've moved so many times in history that you would just move so strongly on each of the young people here that you would light a new flame in their hearts, take them through whatever process you need to so that their hard hearts can be broken, so that their eyes would be open, that they would awake from sleep, that they would receive the new birth, the new life, where they just see that in you is beauty and holiness and joy and peace. And that's the only place where they will find lasting fulfillment. Lord God, it's so scary to fall away from you. And you are not the problem. Hell is a reality, not just in the next life, but it's a creation we can enter into here. And it's not a place that you just torment people. It's a place where torment people torment themselves because they have kicked you out of their life. You are the one who rescues us from our sinful condition, Lord. Each one of us is so prone to pettiness and to easily dis distraction. And even great men like Edwards, Lord, who discover you and have you awake, and they go through the times of spiritual troughs. And the purpose of these troughs, Lord, is not to make us doubt whether we belong to you, but just to remind us that any amount of spiritual goodness or experience we have is not a sign for us to a badge or a source of pride. Pride is going to close our eyes faster than anything else. Bitterness is going to close our eyes to you. Unforgiveness is going to blind our eyes. Unconfessed sin is going to blind our eyes to you, Lord. So I just pray that you would work in our hearts and open our eyes so that we could see your beauty and that people, our lives, would be marked not by a people who take pride in their standards and what they do or don't do, but people whose eyes contain your love and your peace and your joy. We just ask these things in your holy name.